0: My career, as uh, many know, has been uh, as Chief Compliance Officer for almost 40 years with J.P. Morgan, General Electric, uh, Global CCL with S&P Global Ratings, and uh, four foreign banks, including, most recently, BNP Paribak.
1: In this episode, I bring back one of the most interesting guests that I've had over the years, and that's Eric Young. Eric started in compliance before there was a compliance. He started with the Fed back in 1980 and has been in compliance, internal controls, risk management from the financial perspective until he retired recently and is now at Guidepost Solutions. Eric and I take a look at the evolution of the role of the chief compliance officer and why Eric thinks that McDonald's decision out of Delaware is a true game changer. First, a quick message from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode, and man, you are in for a treat today. I uh, Back with me, Eric Young. Eric is now well-known to the compliance community because of his work in both thought leadership and uh, publishing his own book with his own story. And we're going to take a look at what I think are some very significant evolutions or changes in compliance and specifically for CCOs over the past year. So, Eric, first of all, welcome back, and thank you again for taking the time to visit with me.
0: Absolutely. It's great to be back. Good to see you, Tom. Eric, could you uh, uh, remind our audience of your professional background and your current role? So I joined uh, Guidepost Solutions um, January 2021, so just over a year. They're a monitoring compliance and investigative firm globally. Great firm. I really enjoy uh, being there. My career, as uh, many know, has been uh, as chief compliance officer for almost 40 years with JP Morgan, General Electric, uh, Global CCO with SP Global Ratings, and uh, four foreign banks, including most recently BMP Paribach. I presently teach at uh, Fordham Law Ethics and Compliance and uh, wrote a book, uh, not as good as yours, Tom. Um, congratulations again. Um, but it's on uh, professional lessons learned, but also uh, six sets of recommendations structurally and legislatively to create sustainable, uh, effective compliance programs. Happy to do that.
1: So, Eric, uh, I want to go back about a year, not quite a year, maybe 11 months, and for our review today, start with a speech where Kenneth Polite, uh, the Assistant Attorney U.S. General, um, Assistant Deputy Attorney U.S. General, rather, announced a new requirement going forward for CCOs whose companies have gone through an enforcement action that now have to certify at the conclusion of the deferred prosecution agreement or other settlement resolution uh, that the uh, compliance program was effective and would uh effective for the uh, obligations they had under the D- DPA. And there's been a lot of discussion about this in the compliance community. Some have uh, worried that this may put some liability on CCOs where it didn't have before. Others have worried, well, how would you ever do this? Um I kind of came down on the side of, well, we it was mandated under Sarbanes-Oxley, Section 404, and I think there's a way we could figure out to do it. Some have said, well, that, that really is in opposite. But um, does this, uh, in your opinion, the CCO certification uh, empower or hurt a CCO in the unique circumstances of one whose company has gone through an enforcement action?
0: I've long believed that uh, certifications work, and we can get into that later, but in my view, and uh, Tom, you and I were at that uh, speech, if I call it, the Compliance Week um, forum, is that CCOs, yes, um, are empowered, or at least have the ability to be more empowered with these certifications, because it connects the CEO and the CCO at the HIP, where they always should have been, in, in my view, around um, authority, seniority, um, and ability to to drive the compliance budget, whether for the function itself or um, as owned by businesses and, and functions where uh, compliance actually should be managed directly.
1: I have talked to several of my friends and colleagues over the years who have been in this position, and they have pretty much to a person said, this is the one time when you have everyone's attention and um, you tend to get, if you're if you're ever going to get resources, whether dollars or headcount, it's now uh, during the pendency of a deferred prosecution agreement. Uh, so would this be one other piece of ammunition or information a CCO could use to get more resources at least during the pendency of the deferred prosecution or other settlement agreement?
0: Yes, for a couple of reasons. And and the reason why I said uh, CCO should always be empowered and when this would help CCOs is because certifications, if done right, done well, um, w- will compel business heads, C-suite, uh, other functional leaders to map out their processes and more importantly, identify controls, and especially control gaps. And in that sense, it's the identification, prioritization of control gaps driven by risk assessments that will document, uh, provide an audit trail, and compel these subcertifiers to own up to these control gaps, um, including compliance. And therefore, it's not just um, the CCO crying wolf, if you will, but a, a detailed granular uh, audit trail of uh, processes that either work or don't work in practice, as, as uh, paraphrasing the DOJs, set, sets in guidelines and evaluation of corporate compliance, guidance and expectations. So if the culture is right, uh, the budget will grow because the certifications will drive the the identification of, of gaps. The one point uh, I'll underscore, having said all of that, the key phrase is deferred prosecution agreement. So By the time these certifications um, are signed, remediation should have already occurred. And that means something bad, recidivist or otherwise has already happened. The key is moving up these type of processes, including certification, before it's too late, before there's a violation, uh, particularly big ones, um, or in order to to drive and change the uh, corporate culture. That's the real challenge is to, have it designed right, adequately resourced, and then working in practice as opposed to it being too late after a lot of reputational damage, headlines, and uh, penalties.
1: Previously, the test seemed to be uh, twofold or two-part. Number one, have you created an effective compliance program, and then have you tested it? And if you had tested it and your testing demonstrated uh, the effectiveness, that would, would seem, seem to have been enough. I guess my worry, Eric, is that uh, now we have this third step, which is the certification. But what happens if three months after certification, uh, there's a call to the whistleblower line or if there's a, a buff the fold report in the New York Times or Wall Street Journal or uh, your internal controls pick up something? Um, is a CCO uh, put him or herself uh, in a position of potential liability or uh, do you think the DOJ or other regulatory body would see this um, if it's picked up internally as a working program? Let's assume that the certification process is a
0: work in progress for the working program. Uh, just to play a little bit on, on words. But if designed well, including the certification process, then there has to be a level of, of reasonable assurance. Nothing is absolute. That's point one. Second, things change. The external environment changes, the internal environment and risks uh, for both external and internal also change, uh, either because of m and activities and product and technology. So the risk always changes. Um, but most importantly, therefore, the processes, the management of these different risks, and they are wide and deep, um, need to keep pace. That way, the controls and the identification of control gaps will demonstrate that that whistleblower, that control breach, hopefully not above the, all foldage we say, um, is isolated. And that the controls actually worked and that investigations or remediation will probably both address these, isolate them. And self-disclosures occurred uh, first within the organization and depending on the severity and the criminality, also to the DOJ and, and other regulators. So timing is key. Isolation of the control weakness to demonstrate that the overall system of internal controls are actually working. And an audit trail, not only the for certification process, but also for control um, risk assessments. Uh, to be flagged, identified, and addressed on a continuous basis is is essential.
1: Now let's move to, uh, I'm going to conflate the Monaco memo and changes in the corporate enforcement policy. The Monaco memo was announced in September, a formal written memo released by the Department of Justice, and then that was followed up with changes or modifications to the corporate enforcement policy going forward. so maybe I could ask you to, if you could sort of give me your initial thoughts or kind of big picture review of what the Monaco memo said, what changes it may have uh, foreshadowed and what changes you saw in the new corporate enforcement policy.
0: So so the Monaco memo, to some formerly known as the, the Yates memo, really, a, a couple of years ago, really underscored the. Um, the intent of the DOJ uh, prosecutors to take a, a wider and deeper look uh, with respect to criminality, particularly uh, around recidivism and the overall corporate culture uh, to determine whether a, a company and its C-suite and ultimately its board got it. And it goes back to is it adequate, well-designed, adequately resource and actually working in practice. Um, the Monaco memo, through very public and widely read speeches, either by uh, Deputy Attorney General Monaco and Assistant uh, A.G. polite highlighted the, the sticks, if you will, as opposed to the, the carrots of, of enforcement. And uh, to some, let's call it more um, in-tune uh, organizations and, and compliance officers, welcomed it because uh, of the continuous recidivism and just writing a check approach by uh, many firms uh, that they could afford to take the hit, if you will, reputentially or otherwise. Now, more recently, uh, with speeches by uh, Mr. Palit and uh, Ms. Monaco, looks on a more balanced basis recalibrating if you will both the the carrots and the sticks uh, focusing in this case around the importance um, of self-reporting the need to uh, quote unquote immediately uh, escalate and report to the doj as well as demonstrate that that well-designed compliance program that's adequately was budgeted and working in practice is in fact the case at the time of the misconduct um, and um, during and after remediation. So, I think it's it's a good uh, clarification uh, of of the uh, CEP. It doesn't change anything per se. To the extent, again, and I keep emphasizing this, is the damage has already been done. The crime's already been occurred and prosecuted. The question then is how much partial credit, which can be significant, uh, will be given, but um, how much damage is, has been done because it never should have got, the compliance program should have flagged and addressed this uh, well in the fence.
1: You know, listening to your answer, I probably should have added in uh, the Monaco memo, the ABB FCBA settlement, and then the Uh, modifications to the corporate enforcement policy, because in late December, we had a settlement agreement with the first three-time FCPA recidivist, and many of us began our journey through that deferred prosecution agreement scratching our heads and wondering how ABB uh, got the result they did with uh, that number of, of FCPA violations, And one of the things that I lauded the DOJ for was that I thought they thoroughly and in detail explained how ABB was able to get what I thought was a stunning settlement given the facts, but it wasn't the DOJ giving away uh, anything. It was what ABB earned starting with um, a very close attempt to self-disclose and uh, there was a lot of ink on the Deferred Prosecution Agreement about that attempt. And they. Ex- the, I think what the DOJ was trying to uh, communicate was if you have an effective compliance program which picks up violations, which ABB did, um, the fact that the story broke in the South African press be- either the day before or uh, shortly before ABB was scheduled to meet with the DOJ, was given a lot of credit, but ABB engaged in extraordinary cooperation and an extraordinary remediation. And the cooperation, the only additional piece of information other than those words, extraordinary cooperation, was in the Securities and Exchange Commission order around this enforcement action. It said they basically were providing documents and information in real time to the commission, and to the Department of Justice. So we had a hint or a sense of what ABB was doing during the investigative phase, and then the remediation phase was equally impressive. Now, ABB um, still had to certify that they were able to escape a monitor, and they did that because they put an effective compliance program in place, and they were testing it and have tested it. Uh, But they are going to continue to report to the Department of Justice literally on a quarterly basis uh, the results of that testing. And and I say all that in some detail because that's how ABB, a three-time FCPA loser, got the result they did. And when the, the way the DOJ communicated that information, it made clear that as bad as the facts may be, if you really change your tune, and we trust that you change your tune, We will give you credit for what you prove to us. And then we saw, as you said, the the carrot part uh, came out in a corporate enforcement policy. And and then when I read that, I said, okay, that's how ABB got the result. We didn't know that at the time, but now I see sort of a kind of a straight line continuum. Um, And as you called it a recalibration, I probably was a little bit stronger about the recidivist part, but it, it mm. did give us carrots around that, and it gave real incentive because 75% off the low range of the sentencing guidelines. I used to be a sentencing guideline calculation fanatic, mm. yeah, and I, uh, it's still to me a mystery in many ways how they come up with that range. But if you have a, a $100 million fine as your low point and a $300 million as your high point, the mid-range is $200 million, and that's $100 million more if you get a 75% discount off the low range, that's real money. And I thought that was very well uh, explained to us from the Kenneth Polite speech. But here's the part uh, that I really wanted to explore with you, Eric. Uh, The Kenneth Polite speech announcing the changes to the CEP talked about having an effective compliance program in place at the time of the incident. And he defined that as having controls which picked up the event, leading to the self-disclosure. So that was the ABB part. And that, to my mind, was the first time we had seen anything close to the definition of an effective compliance program explained as effective controls which detected. Now, prevent, detect, and remediate have always been a three-pronged part of any compliance program, but um, typically the DOJ had focused on the effectiveness of your compliance program at the conclusion of your Enforcement action here. They really harped on that uh, at the time of the um, incident in question. Once again, a very long winded way to ask you: Did you see anything new or different that would cause you to maybe rethink what is an effective compliance program or how you might counsel a client?
0: So, for me, particularly coming from the the banking industry, which has um, been and continues to be highly regulated and Beaten up in many ways because of uh, similar types of, of issues around the lack of self-disclosure, the the weakness of uh, surveillance monitoring and reporting, especially to the board. Uh, they have uh, they're further ahead than the non-banks, industrials, the technology, and other companies of and and being able to. Identify um, red flags through surveillance technology, um, self-policing, and have an audit trail behind it. Because if it's not written, then it didn't occur, so to speak, including decisions. So, from that perspective, it's it's not new per se, but it's certainly newer um, and less mature on the non-banking side. Um, and and there's much more work to go. That's point one. Point two is. A hundred million dollars sounds like a lot of money in it, and it certainly is. But if you do more calculus in terms of many of these firms, quarterly profits, um, annual profits, even for those recidivists that have uh, hundreds of millions and billions uh, in fines and remediation and monitoring costs, that still, believe it or not, actually ends up just, for some firms, one quarter of, of their profits. Uh, So the question then is, how will the culture change and how much is um, non-disclosure because of privilege or other issues still driving not only uh, the decision, but also the overall culture of timing? When does a firm uh, disclose? So in the ABB case, and hopefully others going forward, is they think, Privilege is important, but not necessarily paramount as it relates to the timing and the ultimate disclosure and how much disclosure is made to the DOJ and and other regulators. Perhaps that's why, uh, depending on uh, the timing also of the actual underlying misconduct or violation at APB and any changes, not just in terms of remediation, but also structurally, culturally, and empowerment of the CCO um, have since changed to earn that trust, in this case, the DOJ and, and SEC. Um, sure sounds like it, and it sure uh, demonstrates that firms, uh, however recidivist, how, however uh, aggravating circumstances, still have a shot uh, if that's the calculus that they're focusing on. But hopefully the calculus also it includes how much is the CCO actually being paid? How uh, where does the CCO fit in the organization? And most importantly, how accountable are the businesses and the C-suite uh, with respect to complying every day? That's the key and the solution, if you will, and the calculus, as we like to say, that results in the net penalty. But but you know culture accountability they're quite intangible and that's the, the, the key to success to an effective
1: compliance program that's literally working in practice. The other component uh, re-emphasized or reoriented in the polite speech announcing changes to CEP was extraordinary cooperation And I tried to cite to the one line I found in the ABB enforcement action which came to us from the Securities and Exchange Commission. I was a little troubled by police explanation announcing the changes to the CEP, which was essentially, Otter Stewart, I'll know it when I see it, Um, that doesn't provide much guidance. And many compliance professionals, many outside counsel, many in-house counsel work very hard during an enforcement action to provide the very best level of cooperation in, in turning over witness statements, turning over documents, making witnesses available, uh, responding to regulator requests, whether they come from the DOJ or SEC. And uh, they take great pride in that because they understand they're building a relationship of trust with the regulator. And now they're being asked to do something more undefined. And I don't know if that means quicker, faster. Uh, i don 't know if that means picking up the phone and saying, "Hey, uh, this will be there tomorrow, or i 'm going to send you the e version with hard copy of Follow by FedEx. I really have struggled with how to be able to explain what goes from extraordinary cooperation to sort of double extraordinary cooperation so i 'm a little concerned about that part uh, of it Any maybe there's something in the in the financial world that you 've experienced over the years that could bring to bear on this question, Eric.
0: I would say a, a, a couple things. One is um, welcome to the world of CCOs, where everything is great and and quite undefined. Um, but that's the life that that we live. Um, and all kidding aside, in some ways that that's okay. From a in this case a prosecutorial point of view, because uh, it underscores to me that the DOJ in this case, or the courts will look at. Um, Facts and circumstances on a case-by-case basis. That's, that's a good thing. And I tend to look at things with perhaps rose-colored glasses, but um, the facts and circumstances of the case also take into uh, account how much has really changed since the first time, the second time, and, and for AVB the third time around, um, again, using the metaphor of glasses, have they put on a stronger pair of lens or or a new pair of lens that enables firms to see much more clearly where the hazards are in advance, but also to pick up the flat tires along the way and to fix them along the way. So um, timing is is everything. I would say uh, firms should not overanalyze the words uh, from a speech uh, too much, but in fact, overanalyze the function, the program uh, as to whether it's really working and test uh, people's accountability, as we've seen, including on the banking side, to claw back bonuses, see what kind of message that sends to hold people accountable, including the CEO and the C-suite, and see what happens. That will really change timely disclosure um, to the DOJ and, more importantly, increase trust from the DOJ.
1: Eric, um, in talking to a lot of people who do types of work like you or our lawyers, external counsel, and even in-house types, they say the most difficult question is whether or not to self-disclose. I'm going to focus on an FCPA since I'm the most comfortable with that, specifically because there is no legal obligation to self-disclose. There is significant credit under both the sentencing guidelines um, uh, and now under the corporate enforcement policy. But it's still an extraordinarily difficult question. And do you feel like the Monaco memo and the changes in the corporate enforcement policy don't make, I don't want to suggest it makes a decision any easier, but do they change the calculus if you were helping or advising a company on the decision whether or not to self disclose?
0: It is a tough um, question and, and, and not difficult answer to the extent whether case by case or who the audience is and in, uh, in which the advice is, is being given. If it's the general counsel who is trained uh, and experienced to pause, investigate, assess, calculate, and then uh, anticipate the, uh, the risk of disclosure, um, criminal versus civil, and the door it may open with respect to waiving privilege, because a lot of it is, is driven by privilege, and I've certainly seen it on both sides banking and, and non-banking. Um, but what the DOJ is basically saying, and I've sat in rooms of, with regulators on the civil side, is the, the general counsels will literally give a one-hour lecture on the importance of privilege. And then 30 seconds later, afterwards, the regulators will say, we don't care. We want the information. And, and that is even in the case, especially in the case of suspicious activity reports um, in which there is even FCPA, suspicion of, of uh, a, a crime. Uh, that needs to be really weighed in terms of timely disclosure um, for the FinCEN or for uh, DOJ or others uh, with respect to was anything held back because of privilege? and the concern longer term in terms of civil, of liability? Or did they do the right thing um, and let the important stakeholders know, saying we're still investigating, um, it's very early days, but we want to let you know? They're not mutually exclusive. So now
1: let me turn to two developments in corporate governance that I don't want to say came out of left field, but they have really added to me to the dialogue that you and I and many others have had literally over the past year on the role of the CCO. The first one came from the Securities and Exchange Commission in an enforcement action involving McDonald's Corporation, and the second one came from a Delaware Court of Chancery decision also involving McDonald's Corporation. The SEC order involved former CEO Steve Easterbrook Uh, who was terminated for having a uh, relationship, intimate relationship with a subordinate in violation of McDowell's code of conduct. And he was terminated without, uh, excuse me, uh, without cause. And he was given a settlement package. Uh, Later, McDowell's determined that he had had other and more inappropriate interactions uh, and affairs in the company, and they clawed back the money they gave him. The SEC settlement action uh, penalized McDonald's for failing to disclose its the board's failing to disclose its reasoning and the termination of a CEO uh, without cause. And they said that's a material information that needs to be disclosed. Just the decision making calculus. They didn't criticize McDonald's for giving him a settlement package, and they didn't criticize McDonald's when they clawed it back. It was simply that information, the disclosure of information. The second case sort of evolved out of Easterbrook's situation, but it involved a fellow named David Fairhurst, and he was what McDonald's called the chief people officer, but uh, head of HR. Whatever Steve Easterbrook did, Brother Fairhurst was doing it on steroids, and he added an alcohol component to his in-house inappropriate behavior. Uh, he was warned about his specific behavior, uh, and he was terminated for uh, both sexual harassment and probably inebriation uh, on the the job. Uh, During this time, uh, McDonald's had a problem with its culture of sexual harassment, and there was a lawsuit by franchisees claiming they didn't receive training, for sexual harassment, uh, claiming that three-quarters of all female employees of franchisees had been sexually harassed. there was a lawsuit by employees who claimed that a similar number to uh, uh, the franchisees of female employees were sexually harassed. But equally importantly, when a report was made to HR, the proper reporting channels, fully two-thirds of the reporting women were discriminated against going forward. All of this sort of came to a head where both franchisee and employees at company-owned stores had a 10-day strike over the issue of sexual harassment. Uh, shareholders sued David Fairhurst and Steve Easterbrook. Easterbrook was dismissed from the lawsuit because he, uh, the clawbacks saying that Easterbrook as head of HR had a duty of oversight and a duty to report to the board. Fairhur- uh, Fairhurst, yes. Uh, So, the Delaware Supreme Court Court of Chancery, which is the trial court in Delaware, not the Supreme Court, found for the first time there was a duty of oversight of corporate officers, separate and apart from a duty uh, of the board under Caremark. So, um, now we have a duty of oversight, and I've been diving into this case, and I've been really interested that the court, as part of the basis for its rationale... Number one, it looked to the U.S. sentencing guidelines, which put a corporate compliance program in place as a part of the uh, sentencing guideline discount, specifically creating the chief compliance officer position. And they said that there are two positions in in a corporation which have oversight over the entire company, the CEO and the chief compliance officer. It's the first time I had seen that conflation, other than perhaps CCO certification. Um, once again, a very long-winded way of introducing the topic. Now we have the Delaware courts, the uh, most persuasive and important civil courts in this country around corporate law, uh, elevating officer duty and specifically calling out the CCO as having uh, one of the top roles in a corporation. And I looked back and I saw that theme running literally from that speech you and I both attended at Compliance Week around CCO certification all the way through. Um, so it seemed to me to just put a button or even maybe an exclamation mark on some of the conversations you and your colleagues and myself and my colleagues have been having over the past year. And Once again, along with winded way of introducing the topic of what did you see from this decision uh, as well? So first, uh,
0: it, it's good to see Activism uh, from employees and franchisees and in, in this specific case uh, with respect to um, McDonald's, but it could really apply across the board to many firms. So I applaud that. Second, um, it is a connected thoughts, if you will, with respect to the sentencing guidelines and the DOJ um, corporate enforcement program from the top, if you will. Um, as well as the litigation coming from, from the bottom in that, um, and as I mentioned earlier, whistleblowing is important. And this strengthens the um, the ability for employees to, to be heard, uh, point one. Second, uh, empowers the CCO uh, to do their job um, in carrying out the uh, more directly investigations uh, relating to whistleblowing whether other sexual harassment in the workplace or other misconduct, uh, suspicious or, or actual. Um, we'll talk about retaliation another time, perhaps. But um, So it's connecting the dots from the top down and the bottom up, creating more accountability, in this case, of, of the cease. With respect to uh, the, the chancery uh, court and the ruling. It also connects the dot with respect to uh, the Barnhill, Marshan, or Bluebell Ice Cream case uh, of the Supreme Court in 2019, if I'm not mistaken, around uh, lowering the care mark standard, uh, which includes not only duty of loyalty but also care and oversight. It codifies, if you will, or at least updates. Uh, the case law around um, who's really accountable um, above and beyond the board, uh, inc- and including the board, but pushing it down next to the C-suite. Um, and accountability um, really heads home when it not only heads the executive's pockets, uh, but also whether you know they're personally liable uh, criminally or, or otherwise. Uh, civilly and if they see their name their face um on in the papers um even beyond the extraordinary uh you know behavior of, of specific individuals in, in this case that accountability needs to be all day every day 24 um, 7 365 um whether again regardless of the type of misconduct. They represent the company. They need to uh, fulfill this duty. Uh, The question then is, how large is that population? Uh, Is it the SEC defined insiders of corporate executives? Um, And to your earlier point, if the CCO is in fact one of two solely accountable and responsible enterprise-wide individuals. One, how come they're not in the C-suite? And two, they're not considered a corporate insider, but they, together with the board, um, carry the burden of of uh, personal liability. So more work needs to be done with respect to where the CCO sits. But I do welcome the fact that corporate uh, insiders, let's call them, and executives in the C-suite in particular, um, needs to not only be more accountable, but also transparent um, and timely around uh, misdeeds, misconduct, so that the board can do their duty of loyalty, care, and oversight uh, to shareholders um, and know material facts, whether good, bad, or ugly, from an investigative point of view. And it ties back to extraordinary the uh, circumstances to self-report on a timely basis to the DOJ and, and others, because those dots do need to be connected uh, to earn credit. But more factly, more importantly, before the fact, uh, prevent these things from happening, enable a safe reporting environment for whistleblowers. Um, it's really three dimensional, and I think many have looked at these. In, isolated pieces, cases, um, whereas you and I and others that look at things holistically can, um, look at this, um, as to what to do before things happen, not just how to remediate after.
1: Well, I think that's a really great way for us to, uh, kind of sum up and end this, um, podcast, Eric, um, been a great uh, exploration of being able to sit down and talk through this with you. Uh, before we leave, though, I wanted to ask if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, your practice at Guidepost Solutions, or uh, maybe about your book. What would be the best place or places for them to go? Thank you uh, so much. I,
0: I typically have a virtual screen behind me uh, which says Guidepost. Uh, so you can reach me or us at Guidepost at GuidepostSolutions.com. Um, you can very much find me on LinkedIn uh, as well as Guideposts and my book uh, called Declaration of Independence: How Compliance and the Board Can Hold Management Can Partner and Hold Management Accountable can be found uh, on Amazon next to yours. Uh, not the bestseller that your book is, but uh, and well done again. Um, but those are the best ways to reach me or or Guidepost Solutions. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Well, Eric, thank you uh, for reaching out. Uh, This has been uh, great fun. Uh, I can't really believe how all of these things have sort of lined up that we can have this sort of conversation from a Kenneth Polite speech to a Deputy Attorney General speech to changes in corporate enforcement policy, SEC enforcement action, and a Delaware trial court decision all coming out and really pointing us in, I think, a very different direction going forward. So I look forward to continuing this conversation. Likewise. Take care. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I'd like to give a shout out to our new production partner, Podflow, who helped in the audio production of this podcast. If you'd like any more information on the topics Aaron and I discussed, I wrote a four-part blog post series on changes in the role in the CCO wrought by the Delaware Court of Chancery Decisions in McDonald's. I'm going to link to it in the show notes, so check that out. The award-winning FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please send me an email or give me a shout-out. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com or connect with me on LinkedIn. Thanks again.